0: You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. You'll remember last week we talked from Genesis chapter 43 and uh, we talked about lessons that we learned from Joseph's brothers. Um, Our summary sentence from last week, while believers have a responsibility to do right, the blessings they ultimately receive from God are undeserved and should be received with thanksgiving in whatever form and degree they are given. And so we talked last week about just the grace and mercy that Joseph shows to his brothers, despite how they've treated him, he goes above and beyond to really bless them and take care of them when they come to Egypt for food. Um, and while we we highlighted some of the changes in the brother's character and how we see them making good strides in the right direction, that in no way have they earned the the good that Joseph gives to them, that, that this is completely out of his grace and mercy that he shows them um, this type of uh, action, and then we talked about how he favors Benjamin to test the brothers right he gave them, he gave Benjamin a lot more food and better food than he gave the other brothers. but what we see is that the brothers are rejoicing and celebrating, and they 're married to, uh, with each other at the end of the chapter. They give no concern to the fact that one brother is being favored over the others, and so Last week, we highlighted the fact that we have a responsibility to take care of uh, each other as believers, much like the brothers uh, took responsibility for Benjamin. In order for Jacob to agree to even let Benjamin go to Egypt, it took Judah taking responsibility for him. And so we talked about our responsibility to take care of each other. Uh, We talked about trusting God while planning carefully, that Jacob goes to great lengths to make sure that they take gifts and uh, money to Joseph to try to earn his favor uh, but that ultimately he prays a prayer over his sons that, that God would see, uh, see fit to show mercy through this man in Egypt. And so all the planning that Jacob does, he ultimately trusts their destiny, uh, to God. And so we talked about our responsibility to do the same. We talked about avoiding the appearance of wrongdoing, that even though you may not have done something wrong, you still need to make it right. And so the brothers had, basically been given all their money back that they had paid for to get the grain. And Joseph had put it back in their grain sacks and they bring that money back. And they're very carefully um, conversing with the, with the head man for Joseph and saying, look, we don't know why we have this money. We didn't intend to take it back. we certainly didn't steal it. We want to make things right. Uh, We want to make sure that there's no appearance of wrongdoing. And so we said that sometimes in our dealings and relationships with each other, It's our job to make it right, even if we haven't done anything wrong, uh, that to avoid the appearance of wrongdoing, we should make it right, and I I highlighted that when I told you that in the football game that I was coaching, it it could have looked like we were intentionally trying to run the score up and trying to embarrass the other team, and so I sought that uh, head coach out after the game and tried to make things right, to let him know my perspective was certainly not to embarrass his team um, and that I wanted to make sure there was no appearance of wrongdoing. And then the last point we made last week was uh, focusing on what we have rather than what we don't have. That the brothers could have easily said, you know what, why does Benjamin get all the best food? Why don't we get good food as well? But instead their perspective was we could easily be in jail right now and we're not. And so they focused on what they had and what they deserved versus on uh, versus what other people had. And then our final thought last week focused, it on, focused on the idea that the brothers felt like God was going to bring judgment upon them And what they found is that God was doing good to them. Um, And so he had blessed them by giving them uh, their money back. And so the point we made last week is that when we come to understand our sin and the rightful judgment we deserve, the gospel rightfully jolts us into an inexpressible joy when we realize that a God who should be judging us is instead ready to eternally bless us. And so that brings us to chapter 44 and 45, which we've already read this morning. Our sermon title for today is Connecting Sovereignty with Forgiveness. Connecting Sovereignty with Forgiveness. And before we get to our summary sentence for today, we throw that word around a lot here. Um, The word sovereignty, it's attached to the name of our church. Um, What do we mean uh, for those that uh, maybe haven't been with us from the beginning? Because sometimes I think we take for granted that, that everybody just knows some of the definitions for terms that we use. What what do we mean by the word sovereignty? When we say the word sovereignty and we talk about God's sovereignty, what are we actually referencing when we're talking about that big word? Any thoughts at all? What do we mean by the term sovereignty? Because I think it's important that we all have the same definition for today, at least, as we talk about um, what God wants us to understand from these two chapters. What's the word sovereignty mean? Okay, yeah, it definitely has to do with God's control, his plan. Yep. Yep, that God's uh, much like a king in that he rules and reigns and has authority. Yep. Yep. Yep, That, that that authority extends into eternity past, obviously into the present, and then into eternity future as well. So yeah, when we're talking about the term sovereignty, we are certainly relating God's authority, uh, God's control, um, God's power, um, the fact that God is is ruling and reigning over everything. Now for us, the reason that we would even reference our, our local church here as sovereign hope, the hope that's attached to that, what we find from scripture is that God is sovereign, God is in control. But scripture reveals to us how he uses that control, that he uses his authority, that he uses his control to work everything for the good of his people and for his glory. So, so that's where our hope comes comes into being attached to God's sovereignty, is that God controls everything, he has the power and the authority to do so, and he chooses to use his power and authority for the good of his people and ultimately for his glory. Okay, so that's what we mean when we're talking about God's sovereignty. And we're going to try to connect that with the concept of forgiveness, because I want you to see how important the two are together. Or really what I mean by is when we understand God's sovereignty, it allows us to forgive appropriately. When we really grasp God's sovereignty, that he controls everything for good purposes, it allows us to forgive people that hurt us and injure us in our life. OK, so our summary sentence for today. When a believer embraces the reality that God's will, rather than human will, is the director of his circumstances, the believer is enabled to forgive liberally. When a believer embraces the reality that God's will, rather than human will, is the director of his circumstances, the believer is enabled to forgive liberally for our kids that are taking notes with the kid note, kids notes God is in control of everything that happens to me so I can forgive people that hurt me because God will use it for good in my life God is in control of everything that happens to me so I can forgive people that hurt me because God will use it for good in my life for our adults when a believer embraces the reality that God's will rather than human will is the director of his circumstances the believer is enabled to forgive liberally. and I think that's why we see Joseph being able to forgive as liberally as he does in this chapter when his brothers have wronged him so greatly. Because he attaches to the fact uh, that, that he's able to forgive because he believes that God has been behind the scenes working the whole time, right? Like he, he doesn't really directly correlate his being in Egypt, to what the brothers did. Because the brothers' intent was vastly different than what has actually occurred in his life, right? The brothers had an intent to basically abandon him into Egypt and never hear from him again and have him eventually work his way to death, basically. And that intent does not get carried out. God steps in and and works through their evil actions and accomplishes good and great purposes, both for the children of Israel... And then ultimately, for God's glory, as Christ will eventually come through this nation. So when a believer embraces the reality that it's God who is doing things, and that humans don't have the ability to run our circumstances, our circumstances should never be attributed to some other person in our life, that God is working the circumstances in our life. And when we believe that, when we really wrap our our minds around that reality, that it's God and not other humans that direct our circumstances. It allows us to forgive those that hurt us, and we'll see more as we unpack this chapter why that's the case. All right, some introductory notes just to get us started. The story of Joseph, we've been talking about this. I think it's equally fair to call this the story of Judah, okay? So, For the past several weeks, I guess months now, we've been looking at the story of Joseph and we've been talking about Joseph and his life. But I think it's just as important to see this as really a story of Judah as well. Um, We had a whole chapter devoted to Judah and his life in the midst that kind of fell right in between all of our discussions about Joseph. And as some of the groups we're talking about this morning, there's a big change that occurs in Judah's life from the beginning of the story to the end of the story. Right? Like, Judah is the brother who, who comes up with the idea to get rid of Joseph and to sell him into Egypt. He's the one that says, hey, we can kill him, but what profit is that? Let's, let's make some money off of this. Let's, let's get rid of him and let's get rich in the same time. Judah's the one that, that leads that discussion. Judah's the one that, that takes ownership of that. Remember, Reuben was, was not present during that time. Reuben wanted to try to save Joseph. Judah says, let's get rid of him and let's get rich in the process judah we have already we already saw in the whole chapter devoted to him that um that he makes poor choices he surrounds himself with with uh, influences that are not good for him, leads him to marry the the wrong type of person who um, who then he has kids that that aren't disciplined very well, and as they get married, they end up dying because of their poor choices. Judah's just not a guy that we want to follow his example, right? Like we've we've, we've kind of seen Joseph as a guy. Hey, be like Joseph. Judah, maybe not so much. But we see a radical transformation taking place in the life of Judah. It started last week when we saw Judah voluntarily give his life as a token of safety for Benjamin. And now we really see it come to life in this chapter as, as Judah takes ownership and responsibility for Benjamin's guilt Okay, even though Benjamin doesn't take the cup, he's perceived as guilty. And so Judah doesn't argue against Benjamin's innocence. He simply says, take me instead. Take me instead. And so this is a radical transformation of Judah. And so I think it's equally fair to say that this is a story of Judah as much as it is of Joseph. In these two chapters, as we've already read, God is seen as the revealer of guilt um Judah talks about that God has found out their guilt and ultimately we see God will not allow their sin to remain hidden. And the brothers are beginning to acknowledge that. While it's a story of Joseph and Judah, ultimately God is seen as the hero of this story. As we read at the end of chapter 45 or our section of 45 today, Joseph talks about the fact that God has sent him ahead to preserve a remnant. And as we are quickly coming to the end of Genesis and our two-year discussion on this book, you'll remember back in chapter three that everything has been flowing out of chapter three, verse 15, that, that God communicates to Adam and Eve, I am going to rescue a portion of your seed back to me. I am going to preserve a remnant that will not yield themselves to the serpent and instead will worship me again. And that remnant continues to be preserved as Joseph says, hey, you meant evil, God meant good. God sent me ahead of you to spare you, to, to save you from this famine so that a remnant can be preserved. God is seen as the hero of this story. And ultimately, this is a complete reversal of the brothers. The brothers start off, they are very um, antagonistic towards Joseph. They, they care nothing for their father. Uh, when their father is broken over Joseph's disappearance, they do nothing to fix that, right? Right? They they just allow Joseph or they allow Jacob to believe this lie that Joseph has been eaten by an animal. Here at the end of this chapter, now we find they are broken over how their father is going to react to this news. They are broken over the prospects of Benjamin being abandoned, um, and so it's a complete reversal of their mindset um, as well. All right. So when a believer embraces the reality that God's will rather than human will is the director of his circumstances, the believer is enabled to forgive liberally. Let's see how that plays itself out in the text this morning. Our first uh, point in our notes, Joseph's test. Joseph's test, which we're going to unpack for our kids. Have the brothers changed? That's what Joseph is trying to determine. Have the brothers changed? Over the past decade and a half, are his brothers any different than when they sold him into slavery? And so as we read this morning, Joseph sets the stage by um, basically planting items in their sacks of grain. And his goal ultimately, number one, he wants to determine if the brothers will abandon the favored son again. Will they turn their backs on Benjamin like they turned their backs on him? So he sets the stage, and in verse 6, uh, he sends people after them. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. And so Joseph's people catch up with him and accuse them of having this special cup of Joseph's. And the brothers the brothers are um, playing ignorant here. They have no idea what they're talking about. Behold, the money that we found in the mouth of our sacks, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your lord's house? Basically, their argument—they're—they're um, they're confident in their innocence. They agree to this extreme punishment that whoever has it, put them to death, and the rest of us will be your servants. Their argument is, why would we steal when we already brought back what what it looked like we stole, right? So their argument is, look, look at our character. We made off with a bunch of money the last time we were here. We have no idea how that happened. We brought money. We paid you money. We gave you money. And then somehow on our way home, we discover that our money is back in our sacks along with all the food that we purchased. He said, we could have easily kept that. We could have easily profited off of this situation. And yet we did the right thing, right? We wanted to avoid the appearance of wrongdoing. We brought this money back. Why would we then turn around and steal from you? We obviously aren't interested in your stuff. We're obviously not interested in being dishonest people. We gave your stuff back to you. That's why they agree to this harsh punishment because they're convinced there's no way that the Egyptians will find these objects um, on any of them. Joseph wants to determine if they've changed. Number two, the brothers show a dramatic change in their character. As they begin to examine them, it Says, says, um, Each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. This is really where we begin to see the widespread change in the brothers and their mindset. It says in verse 13, Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. What we see here is they begin to act like Jacob did when Jacob found out that Joseph was gone, right? Remember, they bring the they send news, they send the coat that's been torn to shreds and has blood stains on it. Jacob believes that an animal has eaten his son. He's tearing his clothes, he's weeping, he he's he's grieved over the loss of his son. And and we see no emotion from the brothers, right? Like they, they allow him to believe this lie, they have no concern for Joseph. And they're really insensitive to their father's feelings about it. Now we see a complete reversal here. It says that they are tearing their clothes and Benjamin, nothing's even happened to Benjamin yet, right? But they understand the implications. They've agreed to a punishment. And if the Egyptians wanna hold them to it, they can. That basically Benjamin's done, kill him. And the rest of us are gonna be servants for life. And so they're grieved over over both aspects and they're tearing their clothes. and, And it says, every man loaded his donkey and they returned to the city. They are resolved not to lose Benjamin. They returned with him to Egypt rather than abandoning him to slavery. <clears throat> Joseph offers them a chance to go home. It says, then Judah, um, or when Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there and they fell before him to the ground. And Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? And Judah said in verse 16, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servant. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he, talking about Joseph, said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. And Joseph offers them a chance to go home with no further consequence, and they refuse to leave, that's that's where we see the big change in in their lives is that they're not going to abandon the favorite son, right? They 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 initiate everything to get rid of Joseph, and now Joseph's initi, initiating every possibility for them to get rid of Benjamin, and the brothers won't take the bait. They have no desire to see Benjamin abandoned to the same fate that Joseph was, which leads us to point number two: Judah's confession. Judah's confession, and for our kids. Judah confesses, take me instead of Benjamin. Take me instead of Benjamin. So Joseph says, go home. Leave Benjamin here. He's the guilty party. The rest of you can go free. You don't have to honor the punishment that you agreed to. In verse 18, then Judah went up to him and said, oh my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears and let not your anger burn against your servant for you are like Pharaoh himself then he begins to recount the story. He recounts the fact that they came to Egypt and he reminds Joseph of their conversation. You're the one that asked if we had a dad. You're the one that asked if we had another brother. And then he recounts the the dialogue that took place at home as well. Number one under this, responsibility assumed. That's what Judah does in his confession. He assumes responsibility For Benjamin. While the brothers are innocent, Judah acknowledges that God knows their guilt. Judah's recounting of the story allows Joseph to hear of home for the first time. So he begins to recount the dialogue, and what that reveals to Joseph is the mindset um, that the brothers have. He talks about how difficult it was for them to bring Benjamin and how they had to agree, Judah specifically, that he would take responsibility, that if anything happened to Benjamin, he would be held liable for the rest of his life. This is all um, informing Joseph of the dramatic change that we know has occurred in the brothers' lives. Their concern for both Benjamin and Jacob, this is vastly different than how they handled the situation with Joseph, that complete reversal that we talked about. They're grieved over how this will affect their father. Judah basically says, I don't wanna have to go home and tell my dad that Benjamin is gone. And this leads us to point number two, substitution offered. Substitution offered. And this is where I think really uh, Judah's um, drastic transformation has occurred. It says, verse 30, Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Verse 33. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. And let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father, Judah honors the oath that he made to his father Jacob. He's going to take responsibility for for Benjamin. This is the first example of the concept of substitution in Scripture. This is the first time we have somebody offering themselves in place of another. This obviously foreshadows what we understand about the gospel, right? That Christ is one who ultimately offers Himself in in uh, in place of our sin, right? Can you think of any other times in Scripture after this where an individual uh, offers himself in place of another, this idea of substitution? Can you might think of other instances in Scripture when this happens? <coughs> or where at least the offer is extended or the desire is expressed? You might think of any other times? There's at least two. Yeah, and, that, and that's one of them that I'm thinking of. In Romans nine, Paul is so grieved over this same uh, nation of Israel. Right, the 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 nation of Israel is kind of in that embryonic stage right now. It's made up of um, of a dad and his kids and their kids, and hasn't extended too far beyond that. Obviously, in the New Testament, the nation has grown to a full nation, and and Paul, as a as a Jew, says, "I'm so grieved over the fact that." the people that God chose to bring the messiah through they're rejecting the messiah right like he's so grieved over the fact that the ultimate substitute is being rejected and he says if if i could he said i'd be willing to to sacrifice myself so that the nation of israel could be saved now that doesn't that doesn't happen and and obviously it's not possible for him to do so he's not an innocent lamb that could be offered in place of the nation of israel right What's another incident where where this is expressed, this type of desire? Can you think of another place in Scripture? Esther, okay. Esther is is willing to to put her life on the line for her nation, right? And she uh, is even challenged by uh, Mordecai that this is this is why she's been put in the position that she's been put. Other incidences where someone is willing to substitute themselves. Moses expresses this desire. When does he express this desire? Do you remember? Remember when he's on the mountain and he's, he's being given the Ten Commandments by God and thou shalt have no other gods before me and you should only worship me and what's the children of Israel doing at that time? They're making other gods and they're worshiping a calf and, and God's anger is kindled, right? And, and Moses, Moses says, take me instead. Uh, Moses says, D- "Don't, don't, don't, uh, don't punish them. Punish me. Like he's willing to give himself up for the nation of Israel. So he expresses this desire of substitution. Judah expresses this desire here, and it's the first incident that we have. It doesn't happen, right? In the same other, in the same case as the other cases that we talked about, it doesn't happen. They don't die, but they're they're expressing a desire that if need be, I'll lay down my life for the life of another." Um, This foreshadows Christ, Christ who is the lion of Judah, who comes from this tribe. He is the ultimate substitute and God does accept his substitution. God does allow Christ to stand in our place and and absorb his wrath and take on the punishment that we deserve. This foreshadows what we understand in the New Testament. Judah stepping up, taking responsibility for Benjamin, offering himself uh, to be punished in place of his brother. And then we have Joseph's invitation, number three. And for our kids, Joseph's invitation is, come live with me in Egypt. Come live with me in Egypt. So Joseph's seeing all this transpire. He's he's hearing Judah's confession. Judah tells him about the dialogue that's taken place at home, um, about how grieved his father's gonna be if Benjamin doesn't come back with him. He starts to hear that the brothers aren't, all that concerned anymore about the favoritism that dad shows, what he does find out is that dad hasn't changed, right? Dad is still a dad who favors Rachel and her children. But the characters that have changed are the brothers because their reaction to that favoritism is different now. Um, They're reacting differently. They're not jealous. They're not envious. They're not hostile. Instead, they're ready to stand up and defend their brother. They're ready to, to step up and take the place of their brother, if necessary, to keep him alive. And so Joseph is being clued into how different they are. And it causes his emotions to get the best of him in chapter 45. Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him. And when Joseph made himself known to his brothers, he wept aloud. So the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph, is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. Joseph reveals himself and it's alarming to the brothers, obviously, because the guilt they've been carrying, the the fear of judgment that they've been carrying, the confusion as to why things are continuing to kind of break their way in light of the fact that they know they're guilty. It's all very confusing to them. And then the bombshell hits that we've been working with our brother Joseph this whole time, a brother that should be very angry and very hostile towards us. Now what's going to happen? It was one thing for us to step up and try to offer ourselves as slaves to protect Benjamin, but his hatred towards us could be revealed here. And there's a lot of confusion as to how this is going to go. And as Joseph begins to converse with them, I think he challenges them to adjust two things. First of all, he challenges challenges them to adjust their perspective. He challenges them to adjust their perspective. The brothers are fearful of the implications of Joseph's identity, realizing that punishment can rightly proceed. But Joseph encourages them not to despair about the past. It says, Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. Immediately, he offers a, a encouraging approach to his interaction with them. He invites them to come near to him. And they came near and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. The only reason he even brings up the fact that he was sold to, sold to Egypt by them is to correctly identify that he really is who he says he is. I mean, the only people that would know about that transaction are the brothers, right? So so he's not bringing up past memories to, to discourage them or to cause them to fear what he might do. He's simply wanting to correctly identify himself with them. He says, look, I'm your brother, and I didn't come across that information um, through conversation that you had a brother named Joseph. Because remember, he lined them up by the order that they are from birthright. So they know he's got some type of way of getting information about them. He wants to clarify, and he says, look, I'm your brother. I'm the one that you sold into slavery. I mean, I think it's... it's. Um, it's odd for him to approach it this way, but it reveals to us where he's at in the reconciliation process. He's telling them not to be angry with themselves because of what they've done, right? He doesn't even approach the fact that, that he could be angry at them. He's, he's trying to get them into the proper perspective that they're not angry at themselves. He encourages them not to despair about the past and then begins to challenge them to see things the way that he sees them, that good has come from their evil actions don't be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for god sent me before you to preserve life for the famine has been in the land these two years and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest and god sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors so it was not you who sent me here but god he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. This is this is a radical perspective that Joseph's communicating here. He's saying, hey, don't be angry with yourselves. And I think this is important because I think the brothers, in order for reconciliation to happen, Joseph's already dealt with his anger. They're going to have to deal with theirs because it would be easy for them to be very frustrated with themselves and confused as to how reconciliation could even be possible. Right? Like how can we really how can we really ever enjoy a relationship with you after what we've done to you? And that's where he comes in with this reassuring encouragement that says, "Don't be angry with yourselves, don't be distressed. This is this is God working. This is God working. God worked this out. God did what he needed to do to accomplish his purposes." So don't despair over your past decisions. That should be encouraging to us as believers that when we mess up and when we fail, God can still work and accomplish what he needs to, right? That we don't have to despair when God has forgiven us, when we've confessed those sins, that we really can be reconciled to God and trust that we haven't messed up his plans, that God can still accomplish his purposes. And that's the assurance that he's trying to give to his brothers here. Good has come from these actions. This can be fixed. Our relationship can be fixed. We don't have to despair about the past. He encourages, as we've already said this morning, that the Genesis 3.15 promise, the covenant that was made with Adam and Eve, the covenant that was made with Abraham, those things are being kept. That remnant is being preserved. Joseph is expressing to his brothers here that he sees God as the director of his circumstances rather than his brother's. Look at the credit that God is given for everything that's occurred here. In verse 5, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Verse 7, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth. Verse 8, so it was not you who sent me here, but God. Verse 9, hurry up. uh, Oh, sorry, uh, end of verse 8. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Verse nine, thus says your son, Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Joseph's giving credit to God. He says, God's been doing all of this. God's been working all of this. God has been behind the scenes in control of all of these circumstances. Joseph found it easier to forgive his brothers because he was focused on the fact that God had wanted him in Egypt. When you see God directing your circumstances, it's easier to forgive others rather than to blame them. So I want you to I want you to pause for a minute and think, is there anything in your life looking back that um, has been difficult and hard that could have easily been blamed on somebody else? And can you see God working in the midst of that? and can you connect the fact that it would be easier to forgive that person? If you truly believe that God was at work in the midst of that evil, I mean a, a great example for our family is to look back on the choices that my dad made that ultimately resulted in my mom and dad being split. It changed the trajectory of my life. I was living in Virginia and had every intent of finding a job in Virginia that would have kept me in Virginia for the long term. Um, and, and so my dad made decisions that were that were not part of God's will. Um, and yet they became part of God's will in the midst of his sin, right? And so so God uses his sinful choices to accomplish his greater purposes. The purposes of me coming home, the purposes of me getting a job at Mount Gilead, the purposes of this church plant coming out of that experience, the the purposes of me ending up at a camp where I meet Lauren and get married to her. I mean, there's so many things that I can trace to a decision that my dad made. And so What's freed me from being angry and resentful towards my dad is the fact that I can see God in control of the midst of, in the midst of his poor choices and his sinful and rebellious tendencies. I can see God at work in the midst of that. And so in order for me and my dad to reconcile, I, I'm, I'm ready to forgive. I, I don't have resentment towards him because I can see the good that was accomplished in the midst of that sin. And that's exactly what Joseph's conveying here. He says, look, don't be mad or upset with yourselves over the things that happened in the past. He said, I can trace God's good in the midst of your evil intent. I'm ready to forgive. I'm not gonna blame you for this because I'm, I'm enjoying all the good that God has worked in the midst of this. That's the hope that we have in God's sovereignty is that he controls everything for our good purposes, creates an unbelievable hope in us that all things work together for good. Even when other people, other humans have evil intent God doesn't let it be carried out that way. God takes the evil intent and turns it towards good intent in our life. And that's what Joseph's confessing here. He says, don't be angry with yourselves. Don't be angry. God is directing these circumstances for good purposes. And that's the hope that he extends to his brothers here. And it's a hope that they're gonna take some time to reconcile with because we're gonna see as as they all get moved into Egypt and, and Jacob eventually dies, that all these feelings kind of rear their head again and they're very concerned as to what Joseph will do now that Jacob's dead. Will he now punish us for what we did to him? And Joseph basically has to go back through with the whole thing again. and says, look, I'm not punishing you. I'm not angry with you. God did this for good purposes. That's what he's conveying here. He challenges his brothers to adjust their perspective as well. Number two, he challenges them to adjust their future. Joseph invites them to come and live in Egypt. He says in verse 9, Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me. You and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you. He says, there's there's more famine to come. And he said, this is the only way that I can adequately take care of you. Come and live with me. Joseph's encouraging full reconciliation here. He's demonstrating to his brothers that he's forgiven them, that he's relinquishing any rights to revenge. And he invites them to enjoy fellowship with him, both immediately and indefinitely. I mean, he's saying, come near and and let's reconcile. And, And once we're done, reconciling right now, go get your families and bring them down here and dwell with me indefinitely. Remember back in uh, Genesis 37 verse 4, talking about the change of the brothers, it says in verse 4, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. That's where we kind of left them as their last interaction because it's right after that that he goes to find them and they end up Uh, beating him and selling him into slavery says they hated him so much we can't even really talk to him peacefully and we see such a drastic change in verse 15 he kissed all his brothers and wept upon him after that his brothers talked with him full reconciliation is happening now and it starts with joseph being willing to forgive not holding a grudge not seeking revenge We've talked about that a ton over the past couple of months when we've talked about our own reconciliation, that we have to be willing to relinquish any desires for revenge in order to forgive. So it starts with Joseph and he's able to have that perspective and that's what we're highlighting today. He's able to have that perspective in a situation where it would have been very, very easy to the flesh for him to hate his brothers after how they had mistreated him. And the only way he's able to escape that mindset is his connection to God's sovereignty. He's saying, you know what? I can forgive you because I see God's at work, not you. You thought you were, you were handling my circumstances. You thought you were sending me to Egypt. And it was God that was doing it the whole time. And so he's able to extend forgiveness and reconciliation. There's a lot of gospel in, in, this, in this story to me. First of all, you can see uh, the idea of, of Joseph knowing his brothers before they even know him. Right? Like, they're not aware that he's, that he is who he is. And that's how God is with us. God knows us and, and and understands us before we come to him in salvation. And God is working towards our salvation before we even realize it. Think about it. Joseph knows his brothers. He's at work and he's setting up the stage of salvation for them. Not spiritual salvation, but physical salvation. Right? He's done everything and he's got all these things in order. And he basically says, come. And enjoy safety with me. Come and live in Egypt and be saved from this famine. Christ has made salvation available to us in a similar way. He's worked all of this for us before we've even really come to know him. And he invites us to salvation to where we can be saved from our sins. And then when we're invited to embrace this news, we're obviously called to share it with others. And that's exactly what Joseph encourages his brothers to do. He invites them to be reconciled to him and then he encourages them to go and to share this good news with their family and invite them back to Egypt as well. We come to the application and I wanna unpack two points for you as as to what we do with this chapter, okay? So we're seeing Joseph working towards reconciliation with his brothers and we're seeing that it's all based on, on his connection to God's sovereignty. He's willing to forgive because he believes that God has been at work the whole time. So application point number one, remember God is the first cause for all events in our life. God is the first cause for all events in our life. This has helped stabilize Joseph's um, mindset. It allows him to forgive his brothers. Think about it. Joseph looks past all secondary causes in his life and attributes everything to God being at work. God gives interpretations. Remember, he had that conversation with, with the two men in jail. He says, God's going to give these interpretations. He says the same thing to, um, to Pharaoh. He says, I- I'm not the one that can do this. It's God who gives the interpretations to me. God made me forget my trouble when he names his child. God made me fruitful when he names his child. God sent me ahead of you, he tells his brothers. God made me Lord of Egypt. God is seen as the first cause for all of his circumstances. He doesn't blame anybody, nor does he try to steal glory from God for circumstances that are good in his life, right? He doesn't blame others for bad circumstances, nor does he try to claim self-glory for his good circumstances. He sees God as the author of all of his circumstances. That's important for us as believers today, to remember that God is the first cause for all events in our life. And when we make that connection, it allows us to be forgiving type people. That any injury or harm that's done to us, we can trust that God is going to use that for greater purposes that we don't yet understand maybe. And it gives us the freedom to forgive those that have caused those circumstances. All right, Um, number two. Remember that God controls the wicked so that his good purposes are accomplished and not their evil ones. Let's pause there for a second. God controls the wicked so that his good purposes are accomplished and not their evil ones. And this is where it's it's so hard to even talk about this in a way that you're not contradicting yourself. Because even as I said earlier, it was not God's will for my dad to sin, and yet it was in the grand scheme of things, right? Like God doesn't, God doesn't desire for us to sin. God doesn't want us to sin. And so I think it would be incorrect to, to then try to argue that it's God's will. Because some people, some people will try to argue that in the midst of their sin, they're going to say, you know what? Like lesser of two evils, this is what God wanted, and this is what God willed. And so I chose the evil, um, I, I've had those conversations. I've had those conversations with people that are pursuing divorce. That hey, God would rather me divorce my wife and 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 abandon my wife so that both of us can be happier when it's all said and done. It's like no, like that that's a, that's confusing. What we mean by God's will and what God desires, right? And so God controls the wicked for His good purposes, so that what the wicked desires doesn't happen, and what He desires does and let me show you two passages that are that are confusing if you want to be confused a little bit um acts chapter 2 verse 23 peter's talking about the crucifixion of jesus acts chapter 2 verse 22 men of israel hear these words jesus of nazareth A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So Peter says Jesus was crucified according to God's plan, according to God's foreknowledge. God desired for this to happen and yet he says, you crucified him and you killed him by the hands of lawless men. And this is, where, this is where it's two things that just they don't seem to mesh. You're saying that God desired for Jesus to be crucified, but you guys are responsible for the evil that you did to Jesus to crucify him. Like, like they're not excused for it. Like, right? You crucified him. You, you demonstrated lawless intent and you murdered him. You killed him. It was part of God's plan. Right? Like it was part of God's definite plan, his foreknowledge. God used the evil intent. And this is where it does come to an understanding is that the people who crucified Jesus, they wanted to what? Get rid of him. Right? Like they wanted to silence him and silence his message and extinguish his existence and extinguish those that were following him. And what do we find instead? All it did was increase his message and increase his ministry, and and it it caused the church to explode, right? Evil intent, let's get rid of Jesus. Three days later, the Pharisees realized that what they intended to do is not happening, that the message of the resurrection is spreading like wildfire, and they can't stop it, right? Part of God's definite plan. Same thing in Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, verse 28 I'm sorry, verse 27, for truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. He says, all these evil people were against Jesus. Verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That's, that's hard that's hard, to, that's hard. to mesh. That these guys are held accountable for their evil acts, and yet we see that it's all part of God's plan. It's all part of God's purposes. And God is using the evil. God is using the wickedness for good purposes instead of the evil ones that were intended. Um, going back to our, our, our accountant, Joseph. The news flash to his brothers is that what you tried to do didn't work that that's where the understanding comes is that the brothers wanted to get rid of him and send him to Egypt and be rid of him forever. And Joseph says, the news flash, I'm not angry with you. What you tried to do didn't work. God did something very different. God did something very different. He, instead of, um, of allowing you to extinguish me, he has exalted me into a position of power and authority where I'm now gonna be the instrument of salvation for you. So, so God intended something far greater than what the brothers had intended to come of that. It's same, for the, same, true as, uh, same thing is true for what happened with Potiphar's wife, right? Potiphar's wife lies about him and wants in an evil intent to get rid of Joseph, to, to banish him because she's embarrassed that he's rejected her. So her intent is to get rid of him, put him in jail. I don't wanna see him again. I'm embarrassed over the fact that I offered myself to him and he said no. That was her intent. What's God's intent? God says, I need him in jail so he can be around Pharaoh's butler so that when that butler goes back to Pharaoh, he'll be exalted to a position to interpret that dream and ultimately save everybody from a famine. Evil intent, God's purpose, right? Potiphar's wife wants to destroy Joseph and get rid of him. God says, hey, I can work with that. I can work with that. Yeah, let's do that. And then I'm gonna explode Joseph on the scene of Egypt. You want to get rid of him and banish him to a jail cell? I'm going to exalt him to second in command. Same is true um, when it comes to the forgetfulness of the butler, right? Like he ends up in prison. He's on the verge of getting out of prison. He's He's got a messenger, a butler who can go and have the ear of Pharaoh. And what happens? He has to wait two years. Two years. Why? Because Pharaoh didn't need a dream interpreter at the time. Right? The butler could have showed up on day one and said, Hey, great to be back in your services. Hey, let me tell you about this guy in jail. He's innocent. And I've heard that before. Like, everybody in jail is innocent, butler. Like, why would I believe your story? Well, he interpreted a dream for me. I hadn't had any dreams in a while. Like, it would have just fallen on deaf ears. It wouldn't have been meaningful to him. Two years later, Pharaoh's having dreams and can't interpret them. And the butler's like, hey, there's this guy in jail. He's innocent. And he can interpret dreams, and Pharaoh's intrigued. Bring him to me. Right, bring him to me. What looked like evil by the butler, God uses for good. His forgetfulness ends up being to uh, Joseph's advantage. Same's true for the famine. Right, you you would never label a famine a good thing. You would never look at that and say, "Wow, that's God's goodness right there." A famine, a lack of food, a lack of provision, and yet the famine is exactly what drives Joseph and his family back together. It's exactly what gets the nation of Israel down to a nation that can preserve them rather than swallow them up. God's good purposes in the midst of evil intent. We've already talked about Calvary. What's crazy is that at Calvary, man is doing his worst towards God. This is the worst interaction that man could have with God. God is saying, I want to kill you. I want to rid my life of you. And at the same time, it's God's best dealings with man. Think about that. You've got man doing his very worst against God and God doing his very best towards man all at the same time, right? These guys wanna get rid of Jesus. Instead, through the crucifixion, Jesus is exalted and now he is in a position to save, just like Joseph, right? We, we theoretically, seeing ourselves as the, as the people who crucified Jesus, we tried to get rid of Jesus Instead, Jesus is exalted and now he's beckoning us to come and to live with him forever. It's real similar to Joseph, right? His brother said, ah, we want to be rid of you. We want to kill you. We want to be done with you. He's exalted to a position and now he's inviting them to come. Come and dwell with me in Egypt. The gospel message is that the one we previously rejected is now the one who is offering reconciliation with an invitation to be with him. Let me read this quote to you by Donald Gray Barnhouse. Um, He's got a lot of good commentaries. He says, To see God in all things, both good and evil, enables us to forgive easily those who injure us. When we see God in all things, both good and evil, it enables us to forgive easily those who injure us real similar to our summary sentence today, that if we, can, if we can get to the point where we can wrap our minds around the fact that God and his sovereignty controls every circumstance in our life, both the good ones and the bad ones. And that when evil people are trying to do evil things to us, God uses those things. And instead of allowing the evil intent to, to, to find its fulfillment, he instead turns it to good, and fil- good fulfillment. It enables us to forgive other people. Because we can see God at work and we can see God doing good things in the midst of that. It frees us from blaming others because we don't see them as the cause of our circumstances. We see God as the one who directs our circumstances. For our kids and for our families, some ways that we can continue this discussion and continue this idea of application Number one, I think this is a great week for us to just pause and, and talk about the gospel within our families. What is the gospel and what are some ways we see the gospel in this story? I hope you've seen some of the highlights that I've given you regarding the gospel. I mean, the whole concept of substitution here found in this chapter points us to the gospel, that, that Judah prefigures the lion of Judah who's ready to step in and substitute on the account of another and to give himself and his life, Jesus, as a ransom for many. Um, what is the gospel um, using this as, this week as a chance for us to convey that message to our kids, um, to help uh, continue to bring them to a better understanding of that, and then using this story as a way to, to talk to them about the gospel and how Jesus um, does things on a far grander scale than Joseph does in this story. And then number two, what are some of the ways that God used the evil intents of people in the story of Joseph for good purposes? We highlighted some of those this morning. Um, this would be a great week for you to go back and and talk about this. I mean, what what a great thing, if our kids could grasp this concept as children before they grow to to be an adult, to grasp this idea that God controls their life, good circumstances and evil circumstances. If they could get that at this age, I mean, they are set up for spiritual success for years to come. I mean, I didn't really grasp these doctrines and these truths until I was was much later on in life. Um, I I would love to see our kids here at Sovereign Hope be able to get this to be able to get this concept, because I think it's going to enable them to be forgiving type people as they continue to grow. Um, If they can really hang their hat on these doctrines that God is in control of everything and that no evil can happen in their life, that God doesn't permit to happen, and they can filter that through the truth that the evil that is being intended towards them by somebody or something is going to be turned for good purposes. Um, that's an unbelievable truth that, that I think even as adults, we're having to continue to remind ourselves. Um, but I would encourage us to try to pass that on to our kids this week. Um, if you've got time during your schedule to, to set aside some time to focus on family worship, to spend some time talking about these truths um, in a context for your children to grasp. Let's pray together. God, as we, as we come to you now, we, want to, we just wanna pause for a second and, and praise you and thank you. We thank you for being a God who is in control of everything. Um, God, we're we're thankful that we have that, um, that assurance um, that you are the, the supreme being of this universe and that you don't have a rival. Um God, I pray that we would we would always be reminded that Satan is not your rival, um, because in order to be your rival, he would have to he would have to have some level of equalness with you and and as a created being he's far from being equal to you and so god you're you're set up alone as a as a unique being as an authoritative being over everything and so God we're thankful that 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 we serve a god who who has no rival who has no competition um, who has no threat um, father we're thankful that everything else in existence has been created by you for various purposes and God we're thankful that in, in in knowing that you're in control, you've given us the assurance that you're using that control. You're using that authority for good purposes. And God, we're so thankful this morning for the promises that you've conveyed to us. Really, since human beings were brought on this earth, that you have a good plan to save man from his sin through Christ for your glory forever. God, we're thankful for the assurance that um, as evil seeks to devour, as evil seeks to destroy, we're thankful for the assurances that you use evil for your purposes as well. Um, that, that nothing happens without your consent, and that even when Satan and his forces and, and humans may seek to do evil towards your plan and towards your people, that those plans and those intents never, never come to fruition in the way that they were intended. That instead, you use those things to only further your plans and purposes. So God, we rejoice over that today. We rejoice over the, the, the lessons that we can learn through Joseph's communication. The assurance that he found in knowing that you were completely in control of everything. God, we thank you for the model of reconciliation that we see uh, between Joseph and his brothers. And God, I pray that we would be able to replicate that in our own life, that our grasp and concept of your sovereignty would free us to forgive others as well. That we would not hold grudges and, and place blame upon people as though they direct our circumstances as though they are responsible for our circumstances. Instead, Father, I pray that we would see you as directing all of our circumstances, even if that means us being separated from our family like Joseph, even if that means us being persecuted and placed in jail like Joseph. God, that we would never see someone else as being the director of our circumstances, that it's you, it's you who remain in control. And God, we thank you for that assurance this morning. And God, I pray that our kids would be able to grasp that early, here through this church and through the ministries of these families, that our kids would be raised to see you as a God who is always in control and that you're always using that control for good purposes for your children. And God, I pray that it would free us to forgive liberally like you've called us to, that not just one time, not just seven times, 70 times seven, if it's necessary, that we would be people that forgive because we see you directing those circumstances. God, we thank you for the gospel and the Uh, the pictures of the gospel we can see in this story. And Father, we thank you for the fuller picture that's obviously been made known to us in the New Testament. We thank you for Jesus who comes as our substitute. We thank you that Jesus stood up in a similar fashion as Judah, who stood up and said, I'll take the place of them. I'll, I'll, I'll be the substitute. Pour out your wrath on me instead of them. And so, Father, we praise you and thank you that we stand forgiven today that we stand clothed in the righteousness of Christ today because of what your son Jesus has done for us. So we give him glory and honor this morning for his acts, for his works. God, we thank you for the forgiveness that you've extended to us. I pray that we would be able to teach and communicate that to others faithfully this week with those that we come in contact with. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.